So Andrew was listening to us talk the other night, Sherry, about this event that we're planning. Uh, It's called Sips and Giggles, Mm -hmm. and it is, we're going to have these awesome handcrafted um, alcohol-free mocktails. We're going to have some delicious appetizers that you are going to play a huge role in preparing. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be at this really cool art gallery on the southeast side of Denver, Mm. owned by good friends of ours. And we are going to have stand-up comedy. We have hired an awesome stand-up comedian. And when Andrew, age 10, was listening to us talk about this, he got this look on his (laughs) face like I've never seen before, this panicked look. It was like, you know, all this stuff you tried to do, dad and mom, (laughs) you know, all of this podcasting and writing and writing a book, all this, this stuff that you do... You know, we, we're behind you and we stand with you, but you have now gone too far because he thought I was going to be the stand-up comedian. <laughs> and he, he looked like, wait, what? Wait, you're going to tell... <laughs> yeah, I think you said that, right? You're going to be... You're going to write and tell these jokes? <laughs> so I had to say no. No, we've hired a professional. And we have. We've hired a professional. Our event that we are calling Sips and Giggles is going to be on August 20th. So if you are in or around the Colorado area, we would love to have you attend. All of the details are available on the front page of our website. The very first thing you see is a is a button to link you to the the detail page where you can register. But it is uh, going to be in an art gallery called the Space Gallery Annex. Again, southeast side of Denver, August 20th, 6 p.m., and Debbie Shear is a friend of ours, but also a professional comedian, and she's going to do a comedy set now. Being that we're in the age of COVID, we are going to follow all the guidelines of the city of Denver and the state yes. of Colorado. Very strictly. We are going to ensure that everyone, except for when they're eating or drinking, is wearing their mask, and masks are required, and we are going to, you know, arrange the... It's it's actually going to be on a rooftop, weather permitting, where the comedy is going to take place and the drinks and food will be served. The rooftop of the gallery, which is really cool, overlooks the city a little bit. And we're going to space those chairs out so we keep proper distancing. And if someone wants to peruse the gallery, they can do so. Look at the art, but just kind of do that on your own. Mm -hmm. Try to stay away from people, then come back up to the rooftop and... And enjoy the festivities with us out in the open air. So yeah, we're taking this stuff really seriously. And the last thing we want to do is to have some kind of a hot spot have emanated from our event. So we're going to be really careful and respectful of everybody. But it's going to be a really good time. If you want more information, again, thestigma.org. You can learn all about it and we hope you'll come. And the purpose of this, Sherry, is we talk to people all the time that say... You know, what What do I do now? I'm sober and I have no idea how to socialize. Or even even the, the loved ones of alcoholics say, you know, my spouse is trying to get sober. We don't want to go to a party where it's just a booze fest. We What can we do? What do we do for entertainment if we don't want to be around alcohol? Because it's everywhere. And so we're trying our best to create an environment and a level of comfort where people feel like, they can socialize. They can watch comedy, which is, you know, that's like food for the soul to sit and laugh at someone's, and I know this person, largely self-deprecating humor. <laughs> so she, we'll feel like she's, she's one of us and we'll be laughing with her and it'll be great. And you want to be able to do that without having alcohol everywhere. It, it, it shouldn't be a requirement to have an adult event. So that's what we're going to do. And if you're around, we'd love you to... To come and join us. One of the things that we want to talk about today on the Untoxicated Podcast, <laughs> Sherry, we've we've talked a lot about how during my active alcoholism, it was really traumatic. There were lots of times when I drank and said vile, mean, vicious things to you, whether that was because I was trying to deny or 
gaslight you about how much I was actually drinking or whether it was was or was not a problem or trying to shift the blame from something that had gone wrong from from me, from the alcoholic to you. There were all these reasons that I, I was really nasty to you. And we've kind of skirted over your reaction. We've kind of let everyone assume that that was an awful thing for you to go through, which it was. And But we haven't spent much time really talking about what it means to go through that. What is it? What is it actually like, you know, in the moment? What's, what's the response like? So that's what we want to talk about today. So, I, and I know that it, it shifted, right, from early on in our relationship when I was drinking and, and maybe you saw it as a problem, but I had no, no earthly clue that it was a problem. Maybe even before you saw it was a problem. We, we would have, you know, we, if we looked back and, and looked at the calendar, we'd say, you know, when we argue, it's usually on the weekends or it's on a, if it is a weeknight, it's a weeknight when you've had a lot to drink, Matt. And, but we still weren't necessarily able to put two and two together. We were really worried at times early on in the relationship about incompatibility, weren't we? You, you probably more than me. Was it was it always like oh it's because he's a drinker or was it like oh my god we just don't get along? Um, I don't know right now. I mean, it seems so long ago. Probably that he is drinking in a way that I don't find necessarily appropriate, and when I voice my opinion, he just dismisses me. So he must think that I think that's why. Like, I think that I'm not very smart um, because, you know, I feel like if I was smart and you believed that I was smart, then you would have been listening to me early on saying, I don't think drinking every night and having a cocktail after work or two is a very good pattern to get into, you know? So I guess I feel like there was a disrespect in the relationship and the more you drank, the more I disrespected you. And I felt like you disrespected me because you wouldn't kind of see my side of it. And honestly, when you drank, you were kind of an asshole. You'd started to become this, like, very boisterous, I have to be the life of the party, everybody thinks I'm funny, you know, trying to make, like, the funniest joke. Like, that became your persona. And and, and so then I and just kind felt of at that, anyone's expense, too, yeah, right? I wasn't... I, just felt too like worried about hurting feelings, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I just felt like, gosh, that's not at all who I thought he was. Like he's really become like like braggy and showboaty. So I guess I guess incompatibility and in, is the way you would describe it. But so it became unattractive to you. Yeah. So here you are dating and then eventually married to this guy that <clears throat> is becoming increasingly unattractive. Mm-hmm. Disrespect is a that's an interesting choice of words. I think it's a good one. And I think the fact that you pointed out that it was mutual is pretty interesting because certainly I can see where you felt disrespected. If you would suggest, hey, let's let's talk about the fact that you drink every day and I would blow you off right away, you would feel disrespected. I think I think one of the things you talked about how you didn't feel smart. Mm-hmm. And you you didn't feel smart because I didn't listen to anything that you were saying as it related to alcohol, right? Right. I, and I also kind of felt like maybe it was just, like, I feel like you started out, and probably all people start out, you know, their young adult life as being very confident, overly confident, very eager, you know, kind of sh- to the point of showing off. And I felt like... Even if it wasn't about drinking, you had a really hard time, like, listening to my opinion. Yeah, you know, I think there's some some truth. There's certainly some truth to the you're 20-something and you think you're invincible and you think you're brilliant. I did, anyway. No no doubt about it that just I just hadn't had enough real-life experience to have it knock me off that pedestal to some extent. Mm-hmm. I never thought you weren't smart, but I... I never thought you weren't smart because of anything you said. I never thought you weren't book smart. I never, like if we talked about, I don't know, current events or politics or something, I never thought you weren't smart in that regard. But 
I did be, because of this alcohol fueled arrogance and confidence, not even just the I'm 20 something and I know everything arrogance and confidence, but the alcohol fueled arrogance and confidence. I didn't take the time to listen to what you had to say mostly and most often. So I didn't think you were dumb by any means, but I just didn't, I didn't appreciate what you had to offer. And I guess where I'm going with that is in long-term sobriety, and I, and it took a while too. It took it. I didn't start listening to you the second I stopped drinking. It probably took a whole year of sobriety before I really started to listen to what you had to say. Not just the fact that words were coming out of your face hole, but actually listened to what you had to say. That I started to really appreciate. Holy crap! My life is really really smart. And again, not. Not even necessarily just like book smart, but like your ability to pick up on what's going on around you and have a sense for the emotions and the feelings of others. And not even just me and you, just, you know, you you, you can be in a room of 20 people and you can get a read on the, the most vulnerable in the room, you know, in ways that they're... They're hurting or in need of something that I don't even, it just doesn't even register with me. And maybe part of that's the male versus female thing. I don't know. But, but you know, I have learned because, and part of it is because you were right about the drinking all along. All the time when I was blowing you off and saying, no, this is fine. All guys drink like this. I'm going to drink every day after work because my dad drank every day after work. It's fine. When I would blow you off and act that way and then eventually after years and years and years decades of this turmoil and then when I finally quit I couldn't help but acknowledge you know what you were right all along and it just made me view you in a different way so I never thought you were dumb but I could see where the disrespect that I showed you made you feel like you weren't smart Um, I never really considered the question until after I quit and then I realized holy cow She's got a lot to offer. Yeah, and I think, too, like, in our married life, you know, like, we came up with some things, but, you know, already to that point, like, I was like, wow, it's going to be really hard to kind of voice my opinion and disagree with him without it causing strife and anxiety in me to bring up stuff. So I feel like there was a lot of conversations that evolved around, well, you didn't grow up with a married, with your parents being married. You don't know how real relationships work like when we would struggle I would yeah. say don't worry about it it's no big deal yeah yeah or like you know just so I felt like you know then and that was just one more way I felt different and less than yeah yeah I can see what you're saying I think it's important because I think our listeners I'm I'm sure I'm 1000% confident that a lot of them feel the same what I just think it's funny. They're like, I am 1,000% confident. I just got done talking, talking about how I used to be arrogant. How I used to be so arrogant, but now I'm 1,000% confident. Sorry. Okay, you're right. A little flashback to the arrogance, I guess. But I know that we have listeners that feel the same way, that feel feel like their opinion isn't valued. And, and that do exactly what you just say. Kind of hesitate to say what's in their heart because they know they're just going to get shot down and ridiculed and yeah, I think made that's to most feel bad. People, no matter what side of the equation you're on with an addictive relationship, I think that's, I mean, I think that, you know, drinking can make you say things that you don't really mean because you're lacking confidence and you don't want to hear, you know. But I think everybody's hesitant in some fashion about yeah, but when you're sharing the, themselves. You're talking about insecurity. Absolutely. Everyone has insecurity. But when you're the drinker, the alcohol masks the insecurity enough that you're not hesitant to say what you think and hesitant to be confident that you're right about everything. You should be. But the alcohol takes that that very healthy, self-preserving, you know, caution and just beats it with a hammer until it's dead. And so then you say things without without that caution. But but there's no doubt that but that the people that are our listeners that are are suffering through through addiction and those that are dealing with recovery 
there's no doubt that that feeling of insecurity about speaking their mind has has been validated. The fear has been validated because they've been shot down so many times. And then, you know, once that's happened and it just keeps getting, it's been validated and it just keeps getting renewed and renewed and renewed. Don't open your mouth. Don't open your mouth because look at the consequences. Look what happens. It makes it really hard to feel good about yourself or feel like you've got anything intelligent to offer. Mm-hmm. And so supporting those, those instincts I mean, that's a big part of what we do with the Echoes of Recovery program. And we we talk on all of our intoxicated podcasts about the program just a little bit because we want people to know that there is support and compassion and empathy out there for them. The Echoes of Recovery program is for the loved ones of alcoholics, not just spouses, parents of alcoholics, children of alcoholics, whatever your relationship is, if a the alcoholism of someone else, whether they're still drinking or they're in recovery, if you know that's impacting your life, then we want you to join us at Echoes of Recovery and and talk to people who've been through it and hear what what their solutions are and hear what their problems are and their questions and their concerns and just lean on each other. And so if you want more information about Echoes of Recovery, please check us out at echoesofrecovery.com, E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com. So, so you felt like the chances of you being heard in the relationship were getting slimmer and slimmer as time went on. And my drinking continued. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes when when... When I would drink and when I would, I don't know, I, the the emotions, the variety of attitudes you could get from me was so varied, right? Sometimes I'd be all jubilant, ah, yay, we're drinking, party time. And sometimes it would make me sad and depressed. And sometimes it would take the stress I was feeling and, you know, kind of exacerbate it. And sometimes I would glom onto something that you had done earlier, days earlier, weeks earlier, and and kind of want to talk about that again and beat you up about something, right? Yeah. So what was your what was your strategy and then what was reality? And what I mean by that is did did you did you say to yourself, I am not gonna engage with this guy when he's drinking? Or did that come over time? Did you early on because here's the thing, neither yeah. of us were pros at this. Right. You didn't know what to do with an alcoholic, even though your father was an alcoholic and there were other alcoholics in your family, you didn't know exactly how to manage it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that early on? Did you try things that didn't work and then you had a different strategy later? How did that work? Yeah, I had a variety of non-strategies. I didn't Variety know what, of failed attempts. Yeah, I didn't know what to do. Like, I mean, I think when we were, you know, younger and first married and there would be drinking like... You know, like I would could be and still to the end was sometimes argumentative and, you know, I would try to go up against this, you know, force of the alcohol, like thinking somehow it's going to get through to him whether he's drinking or not. Like he's going to understand my point or, you know. How much of that do you think is in just in your nature? Because you, you're a bit of a spitfire, Sherry. You, Yeah. You've got a short fuse and you don't mind conflict, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you hate conflict, but you also don't mind getting in there if you need to. Yeah, I could. I, I mean, it's easier for me to play dirty and be nasty and back like you would be than it would be to like sit down the next day or two days after an episode and like really have a open conversation because that's where I felt like you'd be like, whatever, you know, you, you know, you don't know anything. So, so yeah, so sometimes I would just try to like, well, I tried walking away a lot of the times during arguments and either you would come follow me to room to room, which, you know, that was annoying. I'd be like, I just want to be left alone. I was just trying to show you how mature I was, Sherry. You know. Like, I, I know when we would start to argue, I would say, I just need to be left alone. I just need to be left alone. And now you understand, I need to just be left alone and I need time to regroup and then come back to the conversation. But you wanted none of that. So then that would even infuriate me more. 
you know, or you would sit in our family room downstairs and call for me and holler for me. And I was like, oh, Again, depending just on... bragging about my maturity, you just know, showing depending you Depending on, like, where the kids were, and if they're home, I'm like, oh my god, now I have to go down there, because just to he's not going to shut up. And then... So that was your mothering instinct, to protect the kids, you would yeah. come back down so that you could shut me up, so yeah. I wouldn't cause more problems than I already had. Yeah. So I tried, I think, tried a lot of it, you know? I did try to, like, sometimes you'd be like, I just want you to drink with me. So I would try to nurse a beer and sit with you and watch whatever stupid show or sporting event. I remember one time, like, snuggled up to you watching football, which I know that I'm probably going to lose a lot of fans here, but I hate football. (laughs) So I was like, this is hell, this is hell, this is hell. Not just am I sitting next to you and snuggling up to my beer-breathed drunk husband, who I can't stand at this moment. And now I have to watch the world's longest, boring, stupidest sport ever. Well, you, you know, <laughs> you've never been one to hide your true feelings. <laughs> so, I mean, even just there when you talk about not liking football, but even, you know, in the throes of battle in the relationship, you, you were never, you, you know, you just, you just can't hide your feelings. And that's, right. honestly, that's nothing to, there's nothing wrong with that. It was certainly painful to me sometimes when I wished you would just pretend sometimes to be enjoying whatever it is we're doing. But the reason I bring that up is it's it's kind of, you know, going back to the fact that you did have a temper that predated my yes. my drinking. And I was aware of it. And it kind of... I was a little feisty. Yes. In fact, I told you when we first started dating that it was one of the things that most attracted me to you. Right. And now it's like probably one of the least attractive bits of my personality. It depends. When you're, when you're like mad at somebody else, when you're like ranting about like a politician or, or a neighbor that's done something stupid, I still love it. It's still a huge turn on and I love it. But no, when it's coming at me, it's not all that much my favorite, but the reason I bring it up is it was easy for me when when you would get really angry about something to go, oh, that's just her temper. That's not my alcoholism. That's not the fact that I'm a raging drunk buffoon. Right. And then, of course, it would, then I would feel really bad. And then it would reinforce my lack of intellect by like, why don't you just keep your mouth shut? All you're doing is adding fuel to the fire. You're making yourself look like a raging lunatic who doesn't know what she's talking about. So if you were just to shut up and play the game until this night is over, you know. So, but how did you, you know, because it's it's pretty widely known in the recovery community that you don't try to reason or argue with an alcoholic that's been drinking. That would have been a nice tidbit of knowledge for me to know, but like 23 years ago. Well, that's what I, I mean. Yeah. You, you didn't know that because you weren't part of the recovery community. Right. You were just a, a fiance and then a wife trying to survive. So when did you, like, what was your first inkling that um, not arguing, not engaging was the best way to go. Was that through personal experience or did you start to pick up on that? Did you read that in a magazine or did you talk to somebody? Like, how did you start to get a feel for that's, I need to stop yelling at this guy when he's yelling at me. Yeah. Um, I think like probably, you know, articles that I had read online, you know, anything that I could. When you were kind of grasping for what to do. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't, attend any meetings. I didn't talk to friends about it. I mean, I talked to my mom and my sister and they both had experience and, um, I'll say both of them, their personalities are very similar to mine, but when you're away from the situation, you know, my mom would say, yeah, I should have probably not argued with your dad so much when he was drinking. It's just, I didn't know how to handle it. Um, I didn't grow up in that environment. So, you know, I, And I also probably thought, and it kind of was whatever the situation was. Like, if I felt I needed to defend myself or something, I would still go ahead and argue. But I think that's important that you mention your mom and your sister because we have on this podcast talked about how they have both been divorced multiple times and that there were times during our relationship where they advised you to divorce me. Mm -hmm. And 
so we've, you know, I guess we've kind of not painted them in the best of lights, but I think it's, it's important to say that they did give you good advice around how to manage me. Sometimes they did, they did both tell you, look, don't engage with that. You know, when he's drinking and being an asshole, you're not going to, you're not going to win the battle. You're not going to convince him. You're not going to make it smoother. Mm -hmm. You're not going to calm it down. Just stay out of that. Right. 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 And I know that, you know, my mom had come to visit for holidays and she and my sister used to come and take care of the kids because we owned a bakery and it was really busy around the winter holidays for us. So we had families come in and help and, you know, you you were still drinking. And so what, you know, she was lucky. She could just go down to her room and be away from you when, you know, Thanksgiving night you had gotten a pretty good buzz and were getting a little drunk and annoying to her because she knew you were drinking. Yeah. So she could just leave, you know, but she would, you know, I always try to... I pre- thought she just couldn't handle all the charm that was oozing out of me. Yeah. I but you were she just, just... I mean, she would definitely... I definitely watched her, like, be like, you know, very like, oh, man, you're so sweet. You're so funny. You're such a good son-in-law. Okay, I'm going to go down and make you go to bed. <laughs> I'm going to go down because I hate you. <laughs> yeah, because I want to stab you in the eye with it, you know. Yeah. I mean, so I, I Well, that saw, just shows like, that she's smart enough not to engage. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, that... Definitely, I started picking up on, like, try not to engage, try not to engage. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, and then it just, you know, it would depend on the situation and what was going on and what what you were doing. I mean, sometimes you did just want to be alone, and that was good. You didn't, you know, I would sit, or I would sit and fold laundry, and we'd watch a movie, and you would pass in and out, go get more beers, and I would fold laundry. I mean, so it wasn't like every night that you drank was an argument. Right. So those were the moments when I was like, oh, thank goodness, like, you know... But I would always make sure that I would agree with whatever it was that you said for the most part. When I was drinking. Like, yeah. Like, if we were just, you know, watching a movie together and you'd be like, oh, that's such a stupid actor. Or, this is the best movie ever. You know, because sometimes you'd be really down and negative and other times you'd be really up. I'd be like, you're right. That was a really crappy movie. Or, this is the best movie. You know, where I tried not to be condescending, but I couldn't hold back and I would be extra enthusiastic but you wouldn't pick up on it and I would giggle at myself but you just knew like don't cause any conflict at all even over little silly things like opinions about movies because Mm -hmm. it might be no big deal but it might set us off into a course of disaster right that's interesting I didn't actually know you did that so even as you started to learn from what you had read, from conversations with family, and from experience, that it was best when I started hurling insults or if I got upset, it was best to, you know, not engage, to walk away or ignore it or just whatever. Don't 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 jump in. Sometimes you couldn't help it because mm-hmm. you're human, right? Right. And if I said something that really upset you, even if you knew it was wrong to do. You know, you. Well, and you I didn't were always know exactly where you were in your level of alcohol. Like, because sometimes I could have said, well, that was not a very nice thing to say, or that really hurt my feelings, or that was really crappy, or that was rude. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you could have been like, you're right, I'm sorry, that was rude. You know? And that's where that, you know, I didn't know when it was going to be, you know, a bad thing to say, but yeah, depending on how. How much I feel like I was already like being emotionally pushed and my feelings were already raised or if you had already, you know, done a couple things like been smart aleck and teasing the kids too much or, you know, something like that. And if I was already feeling defensive, Mm -hmm. you know, it was sometimes I was like, you know, I just kind of needed to like explode and let it out. Well, I think that's actually another really good point because you've got a lot of strong mama bear intuition in you. I think most mothers do, but your radar in that regard is particularly, you know, sensitive. And I think if I 
if I was just saying stupid things or being mildly insulting to you or just crass and you didn't appreciate it, if I was being vulgar or whatever, you could let that, all that you could let roll off, I think, right? Pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. But if I, if I started teasing the kids too much and you started to feel like I had gone too far, that wasn't going to be okay. And there wasn't going to be any walking away from that, was there? Right. I'm not talking about like abusing them or degrading them or calling them stupid. I never did any of that. Or like over over lecturing sometimes, you know, like to get your point across if there was a mistake made, you know, like I'm like, geez, Louise, just settle down. Just stay, walk away from them, you know, is what I wanted you to do. But that, that was enough that it wasn't, that was, that made it a hundred times harder than to just walk away and not engage like you were because right. you were going to fight for your kids. Yeah. That's interesting. Did did it feel different internally? Did like could you tell the difference between oh, well, he's clearly had a lot and uh he's annoying but whatever, I can just, you know, do my best to ignore him and then or versus how it felt when yeah. I would hit that you know, was it almost like hitting a nerve? Like if it was the kids that I was riding or if, if I said something that was particularly insulting to you, could you feel it? Was it like a switch that would flip kind of, or like how, how can you describe that? Um, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, maybe you could call it a flipping a switch. I just like, just the protection of you're not gonna like make our kids feel bad. Like, how dare you, you asshole? Like, you, you know, it's like, I'm trying to distract, like, a dangerous animal from my cubs by, like, you know, showing you something shiny and getting your attention to come back towards me to, like, take it out on me instead of the kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know if it was a switch. I felt like it was, like, just rage build up and, like, more disgust. Like... You're such a disgusting human being. You have to go pick it on kids or over-teasing kids. You don't know the boundaries when I know that that wasn't you. But I hadn't yet separated alcoholism from you. So. Yeah. So I was just the monster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's really interesting even even once you've taught yourself and you've learned, don't engage. I mean, and, and that's what, you know, Al-Anon or any books or any articles by psychologists, anything you read, anyone you talk to talks about that don't engage. But I think we've got to acknowledge that there is a point where something can be said and your humanity prevents you from disengaging. Like... You, you know, you, you aren't get and and we aren't talking about you protecting our kids from physical abuse. I just right. never did that. But and I wouldn't even go so far as to say psychological abuse necessarily. I was just like the example you used over lecturing mm-hmm. or over teasing because I had no sense of boundaries mm-hmm. because I was drunk. Yeah, and I also and, felt like I needed to kind of do that to like show the kids that. You know, your mother's not going to let this happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I just think there's so much shame involved in alcoholism and recovery. And not just shame on behalf of the drinker, but the loved ones feel shame too. They feel shame because they haven't done enough, because they haven't divorced the person, because they have, you know, if it's a parent of an adult alcoholic, there's all this shame about enabling if they help them financially. And... I think we've got to acknowledge that there is a point where instincts take over. And it doesn't matter what the psychologist says at that point. It doesn't matter what the support group says at that point. It doesn't matter what you've written down in your journal as far as your boundaries are concerned. If if you are hurt in a way you know that that pushes certain buttons or certainly when the kids are involved are involved that threatens your kids or the respect that the kids have for you, you're going to react in an instinctual way and there's no stopping it. There's no logic that's going to stop it. Mm -hmm. 
so that's one of the just kind of really diabolical aspects of alcoholism and, and one of the things that makes recovery so hard. Because then when that happens, you know, now you and I are locked horns and that's probably going to be several, in, in our case, the way we would we would operate, that would be several days of engagement then. We would argue that night, you know, maybe the next day one or both of us would be apologizing and often, you know, when you followed your instincts and you battled back, you would say some pretty vile, vicious, mean things too. So you you would feel bad the next day too. It, it wasn't always me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it should have been always me. It was my addiction. But the fact is there were plenty of times where the next day the accumulated list of terrible things you had said to me was pretty big and long and you were the one that was feeling bad. And, and eventually apologizing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that must have been... God, how... I don't, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but how does that feel to know that the, the alcohol was the instigator, but somehow you end up as the one apologizing? I mean, all that stuff that happens in the middle, <coughs> it's nasty. You're feeling threatened or you're feeling like the kids are being insulted and... You just eventually, you hold back as long as you can, but then you react. And when you react, you react with full force and you end up apologizing. That must feel awful. Yeah. And well, that also kind of speaks to my like, well, lack of intellect, like lack of self-control, lack of ability to, you know. Because it makes you feel stupid because you react that way? Yeah. Because I feel like, you know, I overreacted and I said mean things because like I was so full of rage and it's like it never... It just, like, it accumulates, like, like, you would apologize for behaviors, but it didn't matter, because it just was going to happen again, so it's not like I ever, like, said, oh, you know, I forgive you for that. I never really forgave you for it, because I was like, you're just going to do that again. So it just accumulated, I mean, like, one transgression upon another and another and another. So... When you say accumulated, like the resentments yeah. and you're feeling yeah. bad about me. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the more that we went along having this relationship like that, like it didn't take much for me to be really in an explosive level because I hadn't forgotten or forgiven or rationalized or reason or put behind me the last, you know, 30 events like this. Mm-hmm. So... It, you know, made me feel like, wow, I must really have, you know, a lot more issues than just being unintelligent. And, you know, like, I must have some serious mental issues. I must have some serious self-control issues, some serious anger and So you got rage. to the point where you you already kind of took your own lack of intelligence as a given... And that wasn't even your biggest worry anymore. Now your biggest worry is that you've you've got some kind of mental condition beyond that. Yeah, like, you know, like I have like, I have, you know, real anger issues. I mean, and we discussed it like, you know, sure, you have real anger issues, not just normal frustration and anger and getting mad every once in a while. Like, oh, you're right. But, you know, I mean, we (laughs) like. It's like it was like, oh, you know, the elephant's in the room and we're blaming my like real anger issues and my resentment and my carrying around my fury that I'm holding on to as a problem that I have within myself when it's been alcohol and on the many, many, many episodes. I mean, that's so interesting because I've talked and written tons about how the thing that made me stop drinking, it wasn't your pain. It wasn't your suffering. It wasn't worrying about what we were doing to the kids or what their relationship would be with alcohol long-term. It wasn't any of those logical reasons to quit drinking. What made me quit drinking was the depression and anxiety that I felt internally. Like the depression got to a debilitating point where I could barely function. And I wasn't, I don't think I was in a position when I quit to put 100% of that blame on alcohol. But I knew the alcohol was making the depression and anxiety worse. So I wanted to quit drinking just to alleviate that. And what's interesting is 
once I got over the that first year of sobriety and got into longer term sobriety, the depression and anxiety hasn't just been a little bit alleviated, it's completely gone away. It doesn't exist in me anymore. The OCD is still there. That sucks. But it's better. Mm-hmm. But the depression and anxiety is gone. And so when we think of direct impacts of what alcohol does to a person, we always think of the direct impacts of what the alcohol does to the drinker. But here are a few examples of direct impacts of what my alcohol, my drinking did to you, the loved one. It made you feel stupid from way back, from when we were dating, before we were even married. And then eventually it made you start to question your own mental stability and worry that you had this, um, ang- you know, anger issue, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then when the alcohol goes away, again, just like it did for me, it took time. That that anger, that temper, that didn't go away right away. And it took time, but it also took some work on your part. Part of the work was in relation to how you felt about me and how you acted toward me. You had to start to trust me. We had to deal with the resentments. We had to do all of that. But you also had to you had to do some in, internal work yourself. But the I mean, there's no there's no hostility or short fuse in you at all anymore. I mean, it's. Like you're, le- you have less of a temper than you did when we were when we very very first started dating before my alcohol had 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 any impact on you. So once the alcohol was gone and the recovery process was underway, I mean you're you're a better version of yourself now than you were when we first met before I had had any impact on you. Is that fair to say? Um, I yeah, I guess it's been so long ago. I don't even know what that person was like. Um, you know, but I guess maybe like I, yeah, definitely like don't just lip off to people or overreact and well, you don't have, so let me ask, cause you don't have outward versions of your anger. You don't have explosive temper moments anymore. Do you have to hold that back? Like, is that burning inside of you and you're fighting to keep no. it from coming out? No. So it's gone away. Yeah. I mean, I still have bouts of irritation outside well i don't think we can fix that yeah i mean i think that i mean that's just somebody you know says something really stupid or does something stupid that that's a stranger usually yeah i can irritate you too well yes you all can i mean all of the people in my family and can but I don't feel like I explode. No, you don't. Like I don't I don't walk around here worrying about what's gonna set you off and I, I used I used to to some degree, I don't wanna make it sound like you were some tyrant, but certainly there were times when I was like, Uh oh. Uh oh and I don't have those uh oh moments about you exploding at all anymore. So it, it's just it's it's such a profound impact that alcohol has on not just our relationship, but relationships in general. Such a profound negative impact. And certainly in the case, you know, I consider us to be blessed in many ways because I did fall all the way down into the pit of addiction. I mean, what if I had just been, do you ever think about this? What if I had just drank two or three drinks every night after work and beers on the weekends in addition to my cocktails and just been annoying and, you know, somewhat blowhard. obnoxious and a blowhard and arrogant and occasionally have too much, but I... not, not that often. And just, but I had, what if I had been able to control it Yeah. the way, you know, men drink and men control it? I'm not trying to be sexist, but I'm just thinking of that stereotypical guy that comes home and has a couple drinks after work. What if that, like... I mean, I know you're you're still struggling in in my recovery and in sobriety to find me attractive, for instance, and you're struggling to to all the way coming around to trusting me and liking me and loving me, and that's a work in progress, and I get that. But what if what if I had been able to control the drinking? I mean, by this point, 
20 some, 25, how, how long have we been together? 25 years into our relationship, you would just be totally disgusted <coughs> with me, wouldn't you? Probably so, and I'd probably be one of those, like, I'm going to have a glass of wine with dinner kind of ladies to deal with it, perhaps, you know? Like, if I hadn't seen it get so abusive with your use of alcohol Yeah, because yeah, one of the, the reasons you stopped being, was because yeah. you hated watching me drink. Right, and I was like, this is what it does to you, and also, you know, I mean, you know, being pregnant and... You know, breastfeeding and raising the kids and somebody having to be responsible, that definitely made it. So even like at parties, like, you know, if you said you were going to be the designated driver and I could drink, I knew that was a lie. So, I mean, I gave up drinking, you know, because of those situations. Yeah. Um, so if, you know, maybe I would be, I'd be really, be a really bad drinker though because I get hangover so easily. Um, yeah, our life would be, but yeah, it would, it would be, be like mildly miserable, and we wouldn't even like know, know that it. there was. Yeah, a, well, we wouldn't I'd know that like, there was an alternative. Or I'd we would just like, think this is what adults do; they drink is, a little bit. You know, we've been married too long. He's disgusting. Yeah, he's you, a blowhard. He, you know, but ugh. but 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 if I was keeping it in control, you would just think that was my personality. Yeah, you wouldn't blame alcohol. For that, you would be disgusted by your husband and then just be thinking, God, why did I marry this guy? And the alcohol we know, you and I know now, would have been to blame. But we, if we were locked in that cycle of moderate drinking, mm-hmm. we would not be able to put the blame where it belongs. Yeah. Yeah. So the impact that... I definitely I'll, think we'd have a more materialistic life too for sure you know because we'd be trying to fill this emptiness absolutely you and i weren't doing it for each other anymore i mean i'm sure that we would be having regular sex and that that would be uh super important to me and and it would be completely unimportant to you but that that would be you know filling the the void or whatever making the connection of emotional void this is the yeah this is the only emotional connection that I have to my wife and since you wouldn't be enjoying it you would have no emotional connection to me that'd be a miserable place to be there's so many people living that miserable life so as hard as alcoholism is and as hard as recovery is it's better man I'm I'm so much happier that we are here as opposed to where we could be mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah so, so your reactions to my drinking, you know, you would try to not engage. You would try to take the high road, right? I guess. Yeah. But sometimes I would push the right buttons and you would be unable to. And I think it's important before we go that we, we acknowledge that that pattern continued we, we talked about the fact that it took a year or so of recovery before we started to get better. But it isn't like we just didn't talk during that year or so yeah. of recovery. That pattern continued. We, And that was one of the most frustrating parts of early, early recovery was we could still get embroiled in these bitter battles that, were, <laughs> that didn't feel right. They didn't feel like normal argument argument they didn't feel like a normal disagreement in a, in a loving marriage they felt awful and that that happened in our relationship on a regular basis early on and then even up until very recently that happened occasionally and so just the message is that it's a long road and if you want to get to a really good place from a really bad place you got to work and you got to be patient and there aren't any shortcuts I we I have heard from from readers and listeners for sure that they say listening to this podcast helps them speed up the process in their own marriage. So that, so they probably w- would have been on the same path that we were on as far as a lot of this stuff taking a long time. But by hearing us talk about it, they've been able to say, "Oh, okay." You know, the fact that we still had that hideous fight 4 months into my sobriety the other day that didn't feel right and wasn't an okay fight, you know, that's, that's part of the recovery process. And we've got 
we've got to work on resentments and trust and and building back a connection that we've completely destroyed. And so they've been able to forgive themselves and kind of move a little faster through recovery than than we were able to. So that's got to make you feel good. Yeah, I'm glad that people understand. It'll take a while. Yeah. You know. But it's it's good to know that you you don't still have those feelings and you're holding them back that they just they aren't part of it anymore. So do you feel how let's let's end where we started. In recovery, I have been my eyes have been opened to how incredibly smart you are and intuitive and compassionate and all these wonderful things. Do you feel better about yourself on the intelligence mm-hmm. meter? Um, yes, I think I do. Um, I feel like you're, you know, you'll say that, you know, or when I say, well, that was a stupid mistake. You're like, no, it's just a mistake. It's not a stupid mistake. And that, you know, you come to me and you talk to me about things. So I feel like you do value my opinion now. And so I'm feeling less insecure about who I am and my opinions. Yeah. That's good. I mean, because... You know, before you would, wouldn't would really ask me anything. You would blurt at me your ideas and your opinions, and then I'm supposed to just say, yes, I think that's a good one, or no, I don't think that is. But you didn't want to hear anything that I wanted to put into things. So that's definitely changed, too. Yeah, so. that that weird thing that happens to alcoholics when we get sober, and I, I say it in a general sense. I know a lot of people say, just talk about yourself. Don't Don't talk in general, but... I've just heard it from too many other people. You become so much of a better listener. And that doesn't mean that you get better at keeping your mouth shut and quietly ignoring the person that's talking at you. I mean, I was good at that when I was a drinker. But you actually listen and take in the words and try to process them. And when I did that, that's when I really, I mean, it was like kind of an epiphany, I guess, to, to say, oh my God, I'm so lucky. I'm married to someone with some really wise and, and, you know, loving and intelligent things to say. This is really cool. Cause I didn't know that. Not again, not that I thought you were stupid. I just was too arrogant to care whether you were stupid or smart or, or sideways. I just didn't even bother to, to tap into it. And now that I have and I see what I've got, super lucky. So. Thank you. Thank you. So if, if Echoes of Recovery is not right for you, but listening to these podcasts is and you like what you hear and you want us to keep going and you want us to, and you want to support us, we would be happy for your support. We run this podcast through our 501c3 fully tax deductible nonprofit organization called Stigma and if you'd like to make a donation we would love that and you can do that at that at thestigma.com/donate we'd really appreciate your support we'll be back with another topic soon but for now for my wife Sherry Salis my name is Matt Salis and we thank you very much for listening This has been the Intoxicated Podcast.